0: This is The Horse's Mouth, and I'm El Donzo. Today on the show, it is my honor to have legendary Australian actor and author Roger Ward of Mad Max, Turkey Shoot, The Man from Hong Kong, and the book The Set. So, without further ado, here's the man himself. Roger, how you doing? It's good to have you with us.
1: Uh, Hi, El. Good, good. Going well, pal. Going
0: well. Well, I mean... You know, this is something I ask a lot of people, I want everybody's take on it, because it's affecting everybody all over the world. And depending on what your profession is, it's going to change. COVID-19 in Australia, you guys got it way different than we got it here in the States. How are you guys faring yeah. with that?
1: Uh, we're doing pretty well. Uh, only one of our states, Victoria, is uh, going back to lockdown again. But otherwise, uh, all over the rest of the country, they're pretty, pretty good. Uh, we're You know, we're getting cases every day, but not, not big ones, not a lot.
0: Right. And you live in Sydney, correct?
1: Yes, that's right. I'm in Sydney. Northern is the one that's gone into lockdown again. Uh, they got a bit carried away. They, they lifted the band too early, but everybody started to go to the footy and uh, to the pub and mixing and and so on, and and that went berserk down there. So they're getting two or 300 cases a day, which is not big compared to what you get, but for us, it's pretty big.
0: It's it's just mind-boggling here. So that's, I always want to get somebody else's take, especially you being on the other side of the globe, I think is intriguing with that. And we're going to get into more stuff as well, but Mad Max, you know, we talked about this. There is a cult following for the original films, the first one and the second one specifically, here in the States. Um, and it's become even more mainstream now with the uh, Fury Road. There's, you've got a very iconic role. I'm sure you do in Australia as well. But you've got something in that movie, in the original movie, that is above and beyond anything else in my eyes and others' eyes, which is you've got this, you're like a paternal figure. You're the only one in Mad Max that can really corral all these young guys that are just out for blood. And when I watch that, I can't help but think that maybe there's a part of Roger Ward coming out in the character of Fifi. I mean, is that are you kind of projecting yourself into that a little bit? Because it seems so natural.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I always do. I, there's always a piece of me there, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, if there's not, I'll, uh, I'll put it in, you know. I mean? But, yeah, um, it just comes, subconsciously really I guess when you're working a part of you comes out although uh, in the violent characters I play a lot of violent characters as well I My guess that's an underlying part of me. yeah yeah but I'm not violent I'm a quite a gentle person in real life and, uh, but if anything happened then I would become violent but I haven't had the need so I projected on the screen and and it saves me from doing it in the streets, as it
0: were. So, you get it, it out on the big screen. A
1: safety
0: valve. Absolutely, it's yeah,
1: right. a safety valve. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So, you know, for anybody listening, if you've been living under a rock, uh, Roger Ward played Fifi McAfee, uh, and he was the chief yeah. of the bronze, the main force patrol in this film, and you got to see it. But some other stuff, and I wanted to ask you about this as well, that was, you know, uh, Kennedy and Miller, they filmed that on like a shoestring budget, didn't they?
1: Yeah, yeah, 350000 350, uh they paid the film for, and they made about $100 million out of it so far. Of uh, that particular film, they made about $100 million.
0: And that actually like got into the Guinness Book of World Rec- Records, I think, for yeah. like grossing the most? exactly. It did, it did. That's amazing. Like like yes. I said, over here in the States, it started out as a cult thing and gained momentum. Was that huge over in Australia at the time?
1: Well, it wasn't accepted uh, in Australia very well. They hated it. They thought it was idolizing death and destruction. That, that's what their attitude, they thought it was idolizing the death and destruction or the rogue carnage. Uh, they didn't like it. Uh, same thing with other films. A turkey Shoot lasted five days here and was driven out. Uh, yet in London it was went for months and was acclaimed. So our country is a bit... Uh, they cut the tall roses down, you know. They don't like tall poppies here. And they cut you down pretty violently. So it wasn't accepted until it was accepted over there, you know, over you know, in America and Europe.
0: So what it was
1: accepted there.
0: So it was one of those things to where they weren't going to accept it till they saw everybody else was accepting this, and then they said, "Okay, well, we may as well just love it too." Then.
1: That's right. That's what happened. That's what happened. So now every Mad Max film that comes out, people would go straight to see it without waiting for the critics or without waiting for people to say it's okay to go and see it. They accept it now, but that first one. was a bit of a bit of a problem yeah
0: well i can see because back then i mean people were way more conservative than they are now in that sense and i'm not using that in a political Mm -hmm. sense but i think you get the idea that stuff like that that went out on the fringe they didn't want to see it but something some people don't realize is that was that broke boundaries i mean the stunts in that movie and the stunts in the second one as well was just phenomenal, especially for the budget you guys had on that.
1: Well, oh, Grant Page, the, uh, the stunt director, uh, was given twelve thousand dollars to do all of those stunts and also to give himself a wage. So out of that twelve thousand dollars, he had to create the stunts, pay the other stuntman, and uh, <laughs> look after himself. But he actually lost about three grand. I think it cost him fifteen grand to do all that, and he lost three grand on the bargain. Uh, so. <laughs> That was how small vinyl
0: was, you know. So so he ended up actually spending money to risk his life every day to make the film. (laughs) He
1: spent three grand of his own money to do those types. Yeah.
0: You know, something that somebody brought up to me one time, and we're talking about the budget, is there was a rumor going around that Mel Gibson was the only one that actually wore leather and that you guys had vinyl because the budget was that tight.
1: Yeah. Well, that's right, but it actually wasn't even Mel that wore leather. Um, it was Goose, the bloke on the motorbike, the Goose the Goose uh, Motorcyclist. You know that one?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's a Goose. Yeah, oh, absolutely. They, they gave him leather because he was riding the motorbike, and the leather was more protective than vinyl. Uh, and uh, so we all had the other, and he was the anyone with leather. Even Mel, Mel didn't have the leather.
0: Mel didn't have, but they gave goose leather because he was actually riding the bike. And if he goes over, he needs the yeah. most protection. So that's where it came from. Right. It was not Mel. Yep. Okay. That's all. Cause that's yep. been an ongoing rumor and joke with us for years that Gibson was the only one that actually got to wear the leather, but that makes a lot more yep. sense now. I mean, you know, that's right. in industrial accidents, if somebody topples a, a motorbike and they go down, that's a lot yep. of paperwork. So you want to protect them, I think.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right.
0: You know, and, and I wanted to touch off on Mad Max first, because like I said, over here in the States, that's the big thing. You are probably most known for that. You're known for other things over here too, but that's the big one. Um, so with that being yeah. said, your character of Fifi, you have been kind of personified as this guy over here, and I think you have yeah. in some other places too. So Sean Connery. Went on this spiel about James Bond, about how he hates being associated with James Bond. He wants to be his own self. He hates being identified as that. Do you have that? And is it uh, something that you resent, or are you just are you thankful? Are you happy with it? Well, how do you feel about it?
1: No, yeah, uh, I'm happy as long as they recognize me and uh, and uh, you know contact me or talk to me. I don't care what they're talking about as long as they recognize my work. I, I, I don't care what work. They recognize a lot of the people come up to me now and say, Hey, I didn't know you were in something, 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 something. You know, I only knew you was uh Fifi, but then suddenly over the years they they see this other character and I say, Hey, that's Fifi. Oh, god, so they know me as Fifi, not Roger Ward, really. <laughs> so it's like Fifi is the, the superstar, Roger Ward, just that other guy hangs around. You know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but you know what? Without Roger Ward, there wouldn't have been a Fifi. I can't think of anybody else that would have played that. And there's another question I want to ask you about that, about your style and about something you changed at some point. But, you know, talking about I saw you in this movie, but I don't recognize you for Fifi. I found out you're in Quigley Down Under. Mm. And and that blew my mind when I found it, because I watched that when I was a kid. That was a big movie in our household when I was growing up. And I saw that. So, you, Roger Ward was in Quigley Down Under. He played Phoebe. So, I went back and I watched the movie. And when I found it, I saw you played Brophy, if I'm not mistaken. One of uh, Marston's guys. Yeah. And when yeah, I saw sure. that, my eyes lit up. I'm like, I'll be damned. I can't. And I watched the rest yeah. of the movie just waiting for Roger Ward to pop up as that character.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny about that, actually. Um, I... I I, um, I work for money, you know. I mean, I'm an actor, but um, I do it for money. And if I if I made more money driving a truck, I'd drive a truck, you know. That's why, <laughs> I mean, I've always been an actor since the age of 12. But if I couldn't have made a living out of it, I wouldn't have been an actor. So I work not on the character that I'm going to play or, or because of the film play. I work because of how much money I'm going to get, you know. So when the uh, producer, who I knew... Rang me about um, Quigley. He said to me, Roger, I, I've got a film I'd like to talk to you about. I said, Oh, fine. He said, It's called Quigley Down Under, you know. And he said, I'll give you five grand a week, and you probably work about maybe ten weeks. I said, Fine. He said, But you haven't read the script yet. I said, I don't care. if You're <laughs> paying me five grand a week, you know. He said, Oh, but you bet. You, you better read the script. I said, Oh God, here we go. I live a bit out of town. I don't live right in the city, you know. Oh, my God, I've got to go into the city, you know, to read this damn script I'm going to do anyway. Uh, so I went into the office and he gave me the script and off I went. I went down to the coffee shop, bought a coffee, didn't even open the pages, didn't even look at the script. Came back and I threw the threw the script at his desk. I said, love it. He said, you like it? And I said, wonderful. He said, you, you'll do it? I said, yeah, I'd love to. I never read the script. And then when I did read the script, I thought, oh, my gosh. What have I got myself into here? He's, especially uh, an extra. You know, he wasn't doing much work, even though he was there. He was in the film all the way through, but hardly said a line. I didn't care. I put my money in the bank and, you know, forgot about
0: it. Well, that's but, what yeah. you got to do, though. I mean, that's the whole point yeah. of it. You're in this as a trade. You've honed your skills over the years. And you, you know what? That's the thing. Yeah, I read the script Money Talks and BS Walks. Let's do this thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's... That's what makes the world go around where people want to admit it or not. You got to do what you got to do. And when I went back and watched that, like I said, I was watching it just to see the the scenes with you in it. But that was a pretty big thing. Um, that was, I think that was a joint thing, Australian-American, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, that was, was. So you had, it
0: was yeah. so you had some. St- I think
1: it was Warner Brothers, yeah. I think it was Warner Brothers, yeah.
0: So you, you got to act with Alan Rickman. As well, there's a couple scenes yeah. where you're in there with him. Did you get to interact with Rickman at all in that?
1: Oh, he's a lovely guy. Yeah, they're both nice guys. Tom, Shalik, and Alan are very nice guys. Yeah, um, Alan was more down to worth than Tommy. Tom's a lovely guy, and uh, but he tried to keep it a little aloof. But Alan was, you know, come over to the hotel room and plonk himself on the bed and chat and talk, and uh, you know, mix with the boys.
0: That had to be, that had to be, go ahead. I'm sorry, Roger. Go ahead. No, that had to be almost worth it itself just to get there with those guys and hang out with them and do scenes. And like I said, I'm sure it was big in Australia as well, but it was huge here. So, yeah. I
1: unfortunately had a bit of a I had a bit set to it with Tommy. During the lead up to the film, they said to look, you better brush your horse riding up we'll pay you $180 an hour to brush up your horse riding.
0: You so can do that. At
1: 180, <laughs> I, I rode, I have been, I've ridden for years, but when you don't ride between, you know, a couple of three years, you need a bit of a brush up. So they said, we'll pay you 180 bucks an hour just to brush your horse riding up. So, of course, at 180 bucks an hour, I, I, I was riding for about eight to ten hours a bloody day, you know. And, I, I busted my back. I got I got out of a out of seat with a horse and and uh, jolted my back and I busted my back up and I had to go to a chiropractor. Right. And he said to me, "Oh my God!" He said, "You've got to go to bed for a week." I said, oh, "I can't. I'm, I'm heading for Alice Springs tomorrow <laughs> for a film." And he said, "Oh no, you've got to go to bed," and I can't. So anyway, there was an airline strike at the time, so no airlines were going to Alice Springs. So they put me in a tiny little Cessna and uh, I I felt every gust of wind, you know, and it shook and shook and shook and I just, I wanted to climb out of that plane and jump. I just wanted to get out of that window and climb out and kill myself, you know. I was in so much pain heading for Alice Springs. And when we got there, uh, they had a big party to welcome, welcome me and Tommy and a few others. So I dressed up a bit, put a necktie on and all that. And Tommy walked in with a pair of shorts on and a beach shirt like he was in a hour a or whatever it was he did, you know.
0: Like it was Magnum P.I. To- <laughs> that's right,
1: that's right. He was dressed like that. So he Bobby walked damn. up to me, he, he saw me with a necktie on, and he, he grabbed me by the necktie and said, hey, buddy, look, get rid of the necktie. And he grabbed the necktie and, of course, it shook my whole body Oh, at the shit. Back. <laughs> and I said, I just whacked, I knocked his hands away, you know. Knocked his hands away and poor Tommy reeled back in horror. And the director came running up and said, Oh, Tom, Tom, uh, meet Roger Ward. Uh, Roger's done this and he done, I said, uh, Simon, there's no need to bloody sell me. This bastard will know who I am when he starts working with me. You know, Tommy just, you know, was just aghast. poor guy. I feel so sorry for him. He was so shocked that I should say that and treat him like that. And we, we didn't speak, even though we worked together for the first week. We didn't say anything apart from the lines to each other. But a, about a week or two later, we had a big fight scene together. And uh, it was I, 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 I shit by then. I, 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 I fixed my back up and I was okay. And I rehearsed for Tommy's double. So I knew the fight backwards but Tommy didn't come in until the last day uh, when we were ready to shoot. And I knew the fight backwards because i I've been rehearsing for over a week. And uh, I knew Tommy was apprehensive because he thought, oh, God, I've got to fight this crutch of the old buggy, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, when we started, I whispered all the moves into his ear. Like I said, you are going to do a right cross now, and I'll give you a hip throw now, and you come back with a bloody punch to the stomach. I'm whispering all the moves in his ear. And when I'll we finished... Damned. The audience applauded. Like the whole crew broke into applause and cheering. And Tommy looked at me with a big smile. He sidled up to me and he said, "Hey, buddy, that was a good fight, you know." And that night, I got an invitation to go to dinner with him. And he gave me cigars. And got, you know, from then on, we were buddies, you know. But for about three weeks, he, he didn't know how to take me. Poor guy.
0: There was some was awkwardness lovely, there.
1: Lo- lovely guy. Lovely guy. Yeah.
0: So. And you said there was a. You said you guys had a fight scene that got cut, and I thought you were talking about the one where they where they do you off in the end of the movie. You actually had a fight scene with Tom Selleck in there, and you're right, that never made it in. I've never seen that.
1: No, well, I, I would love to have seen it. Uh, well, I did a bit of a two with him at the very beginning of the film, but nothing major. But this was a big five minute film, uh, five minute fight, and it was really well choreographed and it worked well. I don't know why they didn't use it. I just hope they put it on the d v d maybe in the extras I haven't bothered I don't have that film uh maybe it's in the extras. I hope it is because it was a real good fight
0: well i'm gonna i'm gonna search for that d v d and if it's in there, i'm gonna call you i'm gonna yeah. tell you Roger, it's in there you gotta watch uh, it
1: <laughs> yeah, good I'll get it yeah.
0: Um, you know, talking about some other movies, and, and like I said, I want to touch on this as well. You've done a lot of work in Australia. I mean, you, you're, you're an actor, you're an author, which we're going to get in that later, um, uh, about the book you wrote. You've done a whole lot of work in television and film over there. And something that yeah. I got to touch on this, too, that people may not realize, I, people know the movie Man from Hong Kong. This movie is really 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 cool and you're one of the main characters in that. You're not the main character, but you've got a very large supporting role in it. And yeah. uh Hugh Hugh Key's Burn is in that as well and he kind of plays your partner.
1: Yeah.
0: So Hugh yeah. was the Toe Cutter in Mad Max, so you've got Fifi and the Toe Cutter and they're kind of partners in this in this film when it starts out. Um <laughs> Which is really cool to watch. It is. It's anybody listening out there. If you haven't heard of this, go watch it. If you have heard about it, watch it again. And just make sure that you know that Fifi and the Toe Cutter are together in this. Um, one thing I want to ask about, and this is going to say way back into Mad Max, but I'm not going to beat a dead horse over that. So Mad Max, you're this. You've got a shaved bald head. You've got a big mustache. Okay, you're this. You know this uh, macho. Uh, like i said paternal figure what changed from 75 to 79 because when you did man from hong kong you had pretty much full head of hair and you were clean shaven what made you change that look was it something for a role was it for mad max or was it just getting older going to do something different
1: no 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 i always wanted to shave my head i for some unknown reason i wanted to do it uh, to see what it was like and when George Miller came to me with the film, <coughs> Mad Max, I read the character breakdown and it said bald-headed. So I said to George, see, that's great. I've always wanted to shave my head. Yeah, I'll do it. You know, that, that was what turned me into doing the role. Before I read the character, I just saw my character had a bald head. So I said to George, yeah, I'd love to do it. And that's what turned me into saying yes, even though I would have done it probably anyway, no matter whether he had a... Long golden locks or whatever, but the bald head did turn me to say, "Yeah, I'd love to do it." So I did shave my head for that film.
0: You shaved your head for the film, so you're telling me that the main reason that you took the role as yeah. Fifi McAfee in Mad Max was because you always wanted to shave your head. That's that's why we get to see you, and there's that there's because you got to shave your head.
1: <laughs> that's right. Well, that's that was the turning point. But I mean, I obviously would have done it. Right. Care, which, which it was. I mean, I've turned down George because the money's not enough. But uh, in this case, it was just enough. But uh, I, that was what turned me. But I, I said to myself, I've got to grow a moustache to keep my face balanced. I knew what I'd look like with a bald head.
0: I had I had a, uh,
1: uh, a French girlfriend at the time. And when I shaved my head, I said to her, you know, I don't know. I, I'd, l- I'd rather look uglier than I am. I'd rather have a real rugged, ugly face. And she said to me, you are ugly enough, darling. She I <laughs> was already ugly enough. But uh, but I grew the moustache to give my face balance. And uh, I knew that, um, you know, i look pretty rude with a bald head and no moustache. So that's why I grew that, for balance. That's also the reason I wore that scarf in the, in the bare top scene uh, in my backs. Um, I use a, a bare body, you know, on a man, doesn't look that brilliant, particularly um, on a big string. so um, that's why I got the girlfriend of mine to make the scarf, and uh, that's to, to break the body up, you know, so that's so, the sort of thing that I did.
0: So the, the scarf thing... Because that's another thing. When people think of you and Mad Max, they see the scarf. That wasn't a script thing. That wasn't that didn't that wasn't something they asked you to do. You just did that on your own no. and added that to the character.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah.
0: And I yeah, think I when that. Yeah. when you see that scene where uh, when Mel Gibson walks in there and you're watering your plants and you've got that scarf on, is like uh-huh. what what the hell are we seeing? This guy's got so much depth to him. So I th- that's kind of funny that you just decided to put Roger Ward into that role. And I think he did it really good. And I think it really worked.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You've got to do certain things to, uh, to build your character. I mean, the writers do a wonderful job. I mean, all those lines that people claimed before, you know, we've got to give them back The heroes and all those. Well, it's not me. It's the writer that wrote those, you know what I mean? But people give me right. the credit. you know, and, uh, being a writer myself, I, I like to push the writers as much as I can because people tend to forget that those, those scripts are written. They're not spontaneous by the actors, you know. But you've got to do what you can with those particular lines. You know, in the early days of my career, I I used to change lines. You know, if I couldn't say the line in a good manner or convincingly, I would change it to how I would be happier. Was that ex- me?
0: Was that accepted by the people you were do- you were acting for? No,
1: no, oh. it wasn't. And I got fired from a few jobs. Uh, I worked for a company called Crawford Productions down here, like a repertory player, where I worked in all of their shows. They did about six or seven shows uh, at one time, and we went from one show to the other as repertory actors. And because I kept changing the lines to suit me. I was fired or blackballed for eight months. I didn't use me for eight months. That's wow. one way to uh, that's one way to uh, punish me is to stop my paycheck coming for eight months. So
0: now we're being oh, from on, I,
1: yeah, Well, from then on I said every line, no matter the line given me, I would say it and I'd find a way to say it with conviction. And it was a good it was a good grounding really to you get those lines and they think they don't make any sense whatsoever, but you finally make them sound sense, you know. Because a lot of writers can't talk like an actor, like being a writer and an actor, it's much easier because I can now I can write lines that an actor can say, but a lot of writers are just boffins, you know, they're, they're educated intellectuals, but they can't say dialogue. Well-
0: well, the, know, people that, just, the people that write don't have to go up there and stand in front of a camera or interact with other actors nah, and don't have to see themselves sure. saying this and hear it and kind of get that emotion and convey those feelings. I mean, the same thing for if you talk about musicians. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of these new musicians have these companies writing lyrics for them here. Put this out, put that out, sing this, sing that, change the tempo here, put a hi-hat in there. And <laughs> you could always tell when people are having the stuff written for them and they're not performing it. But I like what you said about, we're going to bring back their Heroes, Mac. I mean, that was written, but the way you said it and the look on your face yeah. and the way you delivered it, yeah I mean, that did the job. That, that got the point across. And you're right. If you're a good enough actor like yourself and you have piss poor uh, lines and they're written for you and you're going, I, this is my job, I'm going to do it. But you can deliver it to the absolute best that you possibly can. And I think that's one thing that sets apart the uh, men from the boys with that
1: yeah yeah i agree i agree with you there um, i often wonder what fifi would have been like had it been played by another actor and i sometimes say those lines without the conviction like to myself without the conviction that i gave it that i felt it needed and uh and you could have done it many different ways but i chose to do it that way but another actor may have done it with as much conviction, but in a different way. But you know, I had the role, so it was mine to do. And uh, I, I just mentioned uh, Grant Page, the stunt man. Well, Grant and I have been friends for long before, long before Mad Max, long before he did the stunt right. in Man from Hong Kong. Uh, we were stunt, we were friends before, before we made films together. But um, but after that, we showed the rushes of that scene. You and me, Max, we have got to give them back. Uh, we showed the rushes of that. And Grant and I were sitting together. And Grant turned to me and said, oh, my God, mate, you're over the top. You know, you're overacting, he said to me. But 40 years later, I was at a function for the 40th. And Grant came to me and said, oh, mate, I saw Mad Max last night. He said, that was beautiful, that saying you did. Uh, you've got to give him. I said, hey, remember 40 <laughs> years ago you told me? <laughs> he said, what, did I? I said, yeah, I didn't forget it, 40 years. <laughs> i didn't forget that he rubbish
0: me me <laughs> so 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 40 years after you utter those iconic lines and they're repeated everywhere and you're known worldwide for this character he comes up oh hey good job by the way and he just kind of forgets <laughs> about what he said to you back when it was being That's done
1: <laughs> right. i didn't i didn't forget <laughs> he, 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 oh. he said a lot of things in that time but uh, he forgotten what he said that night but i didn't.
0: You know, and here's another thing. Talking about Australian film, and of course, I'm from the States. I'm not going to repeat that again, <laughs> but uh, you worked with Hugh Key's Burnt. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you worked with him in Man from Hong Kong. Then you guys went on, and you were both in, but you, were, I don't think you were ever together in the film Mad Max. Did you guys have any kind of relationship off screen? Did you guys know each other? Did you do studios and whatnot together, or, or plays, or...?
1: I met you in '72 uh, on the film called Stone, a Biker film, which right. influenced Mad Max. Yeah, and uh, I didn't know him at the time, but I do remember sitting on the ground, waiting, waiting to do a scene, and unbeknownst to me, he was sitting on the fence above me, a brick, a brick, a brick fence. He was sitting on the fence above me, but I didn't know because I was sitting on the ground and uh, I was talking to my fellow actors. And I said, gee, that's Hugh Keith He's pretty good. You know, I like him. He's, a, he's a, he just come out from England. And uh, I said, I like the guy. You know, he's very good. And just as well, I didn't rubbish him. I didn't say he's a bad actor. And he, because when I got up, I, oh, my God, he's standing right above me. And he <laughs> overheard me saying, but I did say good things about him. But, no, we're good friends. We are all good friends, all of us from Mad Max. We see each other quite socially, uh, like Tundalini.
0: Uh, Johnny the Boy, Goose. Uh, what? Well, yeah, it seems like when I I can't remember which one of you guys I came across on Facebook first, but now I see all this. You guys are getting together here, and you're having a reunion there, and you you guys all seem to be good friends and and do the thing. And I think that's awesome. I think it's I I think it's great for the fans too. I think it makes their yeah. hearts warm to see that stuff as well. You know, one last thing I'm gonna touch on with Mad Max. All right, so we know Max in the second and the sequel comes back and he comes back for another one. What do you think happened to Fifi at the end of Mad Max? Have you ever thought about that? Like, what did this character, what developed with him? Because we know absolutely everything hits the fan between the first one and the second one.
1: Yeah. I've got a feeling that the, that the revolution happened that everybody escaped from the city where I worked. I think it must have been an, you know an overwhelming revolution and everybody left town. I think the, the police force disbanded and I should imagine that Fifi was escaped hopefully and lived in the wilderness. Uh, the reason I say this is because George approached me to do Mad Max 2 to play Qbunggus, who uh, as we know now wore a mask and uh, he was burnt, his face was disfigured. And wow, really? I said that to yeah, yeah. I said to George when George called me in. Uh, George had changed his persona; had changed completely from Mad Max One to Mad Max Two. Mad Max One, he came to my home, knocked on the door very timidly, and said to me, "Excuse me, uh, my name's George Miller, and uh, I'd like to talk to you about a film." But Mad Max Two, he rang my agent. And said, tell Roger to come in and audition for Mad Max 2. Well, I, so, I, blew, so, I blew up.
0: <laughs> so so it, it goes from it goes from, "Gee, Mister Ward, nice to meet you. Can you come look at my movie?" And then you get done with the first one. It's like, "Hey, Roger, get your butt down here."
1: That's right, exactly. <laughs> that's right. But trial in between those two, George and I have become very good friends and we used to we used to have coffees together and he lived in Melbourne I lived in Sydney but I was in Melbourne a lot or if he was in Sydney we'd get together and talk and chat and laugh and I was with him when he made his first million dollars to, wow. I was with him when the phone call came through and I was so excited but George wasn't George was very down I realise now that he was probably so far in the red that a million dollars didn't help him you know what I mean like, but a million dollars to me would have been fabulous so I you know, I was excited. And we went and had lunch together. We, I think the bill came to right. $13. Yeah, we, that's how cheap we were. We had $13 lunch. But George had changed. And then when he got Mad Max 2 going, he became a bit of a mogul, a bit of a, like a movie mogul. And he, he demanded I come down to his office. So I rang him up and said, hey, what's this audition bullshit? He said, well, I, no, I'm no, no, sorry. Feet. He calls me Feet, even to the States. <laughs> He said, oh, he Fifi, call, no, so, no, no.
0: Kennedy calls you Fifi?
1: He, he calls me Fifi all the time, yeah.
0: <laughs> so you can't he get said, away from it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> he said, come down to the office and uh, tell me a joke. You know, and I said, oh, of course. So I, I burst into his office, and he was sitting there behind a great big massive desk, and uh, he looked like uh, Edward Barr, you know, the MGM bloke. And uh, I said, George forget the joke, I want $50,000, you know, and he said, what? I said, I want 50 grand to play humongous. He said, get out of my office. He stood up and he pointed to the door and he said, get out! And I went, and we we didn't talk for 10 years, and it was 10 years later that I met him at a party and we hugged each other and shook hands and and we've been mates ever since, but... um, but that's what makes me realise that uh, Fifi must have been burnt or, you know, shattered in some way to come back as humongous. Uh, but uh, he didn't come back as humongous after all because of my my demands. But and uh, he used uh, another guy that was a bodybuilder from Sweden.
0: Yeah, Shell, uh, right?
1: Michael Shell, yeah, yeah, Shell. Shell, and he's a lovely guy. Yeah, he yeah, seems so, like. He, it. He's a nice guy. But, funny enough, we, all, uh, Shell and I, after Mad Max 2, Shell and I did another film called The uh, uh, the Pirate Movie. And uh, in that, Shell and I were playing pirates. You know, and uh, I got to know him well. Those. Yeah, and I said to Shell one day, I said, Shell, I've got to, I've got to uh, admit something to you. I said, everybody seems to think it's me, Fifi, playing Hugh Nuggers. And I said, I got sick and tired of saying, oh, it's not me, it's not me. So I didn't even tell anybody else, he, was at you? I say yeah. And they said, I loved you in that. I said, thank you. He said, that's okay. He said, I told people it was me playing Creepy and Bad Max One.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? What goes mean. around comes around, right, Roger? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, before we move on, I t- the one thing that I've always heard was like a like a fan theory on that was it was actually goose that came back and was a humongous because it was all burned up. And I don't know if they wrote it like that to kinda of insinuate it may be the goose, but because the goose yeah. gets burned up in the first one and then one of the fan theories is, Oh, they did this and we heard that, you know, Miller said this at one point and it was supposed to be the goose. So you just you just clarified a lot of stuff right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of
1: a lot of theories about that. And it's amazing the amount of theories of and discussions even to this day. What well, it's now 40, 40, 43 years since we we made that film, and, uh, and there's so many discussions. I was with a guy yesterday, uh, signing photographs and sending out video messages. To he's got a he's got a web page to look after Mad Max people. Right. Uh, and I, yesterday I was having having lunch at his place, and we're doing videos and signing photographs and sending messages. You know, it's amazing. Forty-three years later, I had no idea when I did that film that forty-three years later I'll be still be involved. You know, in a in a very strong way with that film. It's amazing. Well, it's
0: yeah, the longevity of that film and how it stands yeah. the test of time. And and you know, I'm gonna move before we completely switch gears here. You know, one more I got I got to talk about is Turkey Shoot, uh, which. It's like watching Fifi lose his mind and become an evil, sadistic SOB, which is highly entertaining. It's, you know, at the end of the movie, I'm not going to ruin it for anybody, but I'm going, it's not Kundalini, it's Fifi wants his hand back now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So you're watching that, there's a lot of correlations going on in these Roger Ward films. But that was one... I'm watching you play this character, and I'm thinking... Maybe Roger Ward kind of likes this because he's doing it pretty damn good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I do, I do, I do. I really do like the violent films. I, as I said to you, it, it keeps me off the streets, it saves me doing it in the streets out of anger. But, you're better, would, to, but uh,
0: <laughs> you're better to get your violent jollies off in film than you are out on That's the streets right. and just going to jail. Um, I, you agree, know, and that, I agree, I agree. So that's, and I'm just going to shout out to the listeners on this one. If you haven't seen Turkey Shoot, go out and see it. It is a hell of a ride. And like I said, yeah. uh, it's got Roger Ward in it. It's a great film. Um, with that, you know, Quentin Tarantino, all the way all the way here in the States, has given you some praise in the past couple of years and called yeah. you out as a legend, which you are. Yeah. My only question uh-huh. to you, is have you ever called him up and told him to put his money where his mouth is and get you in one of his films in the states?
1: No, but I've, I've had I've had supper with him and he came out here and we we put a put a call out and we had a long chat and talked and I would I thought that he might use me but I never asked I never asked I never asked anybody to put me in their films I leave it to them to offer and uh, as Tarantino said. Uh, he he wishes he could talk the same way as he writes like he's a bit uh, he's a bit shy you wouldn't believe it but uh when I walked in he sort of he sort of uh reeled back when I walked towards him, but i I mean he was coming he invited right. me and when I walked towards him he sort of he sort of reeled back a bit and uh and I could sense that he was a bit shy you know and we, we well, he- were talking and ch- chatting but he said yeah. i wish i could talk the way i write you know, as freely as i write but he's a lovely guy i like him a lot but uh he's got so many things on his plate that um, i didn't dare ask would you put me in one of your films i thought if he wants me he'll call me and that's my attitude to everybody i don't ask i don't beg i'm here Do you want me you got me
0: as it should be as it should be but that's a testament i mean to your legacy not only in, in australia but the states as well so Next thing I wanna to get to, and I I think you're gonna be chomping at the bits to talk about it because it's something that you take a lot of pride in, is the set and the book, starting out with the book right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. so many things, and this is of course gonna segue, you know, I'm known for going off the rails on different tangents. So we're gonna start on something and we may end up talking about trade policies in China by the time we get done. But so <laughs> you you wrote the set, you started writing mm-hmm. that. In '62,
1: in actually 1960, I arrived in Tahiti in July uh, 16th. About pretty well now, 15 years ago, uh, to write. So, it. Uh,
0: so yeah. question. I'd, sorry to interrupt. So you went to Tahiti to write the set. So the first yep. question I got is, why Tahiti? Is that something, did you just want to escape? Did you want to get away from everything? Did you want to write a book? Didn't know what you were going to do? Was it? What was the mentality to go to Tahiti?
1: Well, I always wanted to go to Tahiti. From the age of 12, I was looking at some uh, uh, geographical magazines and all these beautiful Tahitian women with their bare tops <laughs> and uh, dusty yellow. skin. <laughs> from the age of 12, I was... I said, man, I've got to go there. I, I even remember when I was about four looking at a magazine. I saw palm trees and, and native uh, kids, you know, little little native kids playing under a palm tree. Even at a very young age, I've always wanted to go to uh, exotic places, Pacific Islands or anything exotic I love. So I always wanted to go to Tahiti. So, you know, well, I thought when I write a book, I'll go there, you know. I was fully I influenced by Gauguin, you know, Gauguin, the writer, uh, the uh, the uh, artist. He went to he went to Tahiti to paint, and I was pretty influenced by that because I loved his work and the fact that he went to Tahiti to find peace and, and subjects. Although he didn't so, find it in Tahiti, he had to go to Mar- Mar- the Marquesas to get the peace he wanted. But this is way back in the 18th century, and here am I trying to find it like a hundred years later. In Tahiti, it uh, wasn't what I imagined. Although I had a hell of a lot of fun, that wasn't the, uh, the dusky maidens bare top climbing coconut trees. Or there was a bit of bare top stuff going <laughs> later at night. I uh, board the yacht and so on, but not not in the streets, no.
0: Not in the streets. But isn't that funny though? You can think back when, we, when you were when you're a kid and think of that memory of when yeah. you're like a young kid and being attracted. I remember when I was a young kid, I was attracted to Asian women. And my mom always always makes fun of me now because I married a white, pasty uh, Polish gal. Uh, so she used to be into Asian women. And I remember that going, just, oh, you know, women from China. But anyway, things change, but you remember that. So so you go yeah. to Tahiti. You want to go to a place to get you in the mindset, some place you really like to write the book. Did you know what yeah. book you were going to write when you went to Tahiti? Or was it like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I want to sit down, and get my mindset, and write something?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I knew what I wanted to write because I've been ta- I've been I've been in the amateur theatre world from the age of twelve, and uh, so I kept a diary of all my life from then on, from twelve on. And I got into the theatre world at a young age, and of course I was doing plays with all sorts of people, and uh, it was amateur theatre, uh, because I was mixing with bank managers and and interior decorators and. Uh, housewives. So I was mixing with a whole gamut of people. And a lot of homosexuals were interested in the theatre world, and I became friends with the many of them. And I right. thought, nobody really knows about homosexuality, particularly in Australia. Where they're very, uh, very aggressive to that area and uh, very uh, rough, rough, rough um, attitude towards uh, the sweetness and the delicate nature of a homosexual person and uh, so I thought no one seems to know about that I thought I'd like to write about that and let the world know that they are normal people but with a different mindset you know so I I wrote a few preliminary stories I was actually a cadet journalist at the time uh, and I wrote a few stories for the paper I worked for and they said to me look you can't write anymore under your name because you know you're getting far too many bylines and You've, you've got to change your name or stop writing and so I changed <laughs> getting... my name <laughs> I was overdoing it yeah so I, I started to sell my work to another magazine uh, another newspaper that was a risque paper called Truce T-R-U-T-H okay. yeah and they they accepted more risque articles so I started to write about the homosexual undertone for them and that's what I, I noticed as a big uh, well they said oh, any more stories any more stories so I, I I developed a few stories like I, I befriended more gays than I would normally have done and I went to their parties and I mingled with them socially to get material for these newspaper articles that I was selling. And then so I thought, Well I, see, listen, but, yeah, go
0: ahead. Interrupt real quick. So just to clarify, you some people may look at some guy at somebody that writes the book The Set. And their first thing is, you know, especially when they hear about the movie, go, this this guy has to be homosexual. this He has to be flamboyant. He has to be something. You're obviously not that. Did you write it like out of this? So you went and, and you mingled and you met more people that were homosexuals. Did you do that out of just to write a book? Or were you really curious and really wanted to see how they, how they got along and that they were normal and, and that kind of thing? Was it? Was it kind of more investigative at times than anything else then?
1: But, well, you you, you spot on with me you know, wanting to know personally more about it, yeah. I was using the book as an excuse for my, for my curiosity, yeah. But, I mean, it's good right. to be curious, and it's, and it's good to have a – well, I've got a, I've got a police badge, a uh, you know, journalist, uh, uh, like a badge. I can go to accidents, and I can go to anywhere and flash my badge, and the police have to let me too because it's a journalist. Um, badge that I've had for years. So that was my journalist badge. And I remember one night I went to a party and uh, I saw these two guys moving off to the bedroom and I thought, hello, here we go. So I staggered in there, made it, I was drunk. Made it, I was drunk and I was the reel and I fell down by the bed. And they said, who's that, who's that? And someone said, oh, it's just Roger. You know, it's okay, it's only Roger. <laughs> so, I, So you're accepted
0: I at it. that point.
1: <laughs> that's right. So I lay there, making out to be drunk and disorderly, listening and taking notes mentally. So that's the way I got my material. And uh, as you say, I was branded as a homosexual. Not that it worries me. Uh, I'm man enough right. to wear to wear a dress uh, in the streets, uh, no of my sexuality. But I am very protective of these guys. You know, I, I'm very protective of them as well. I won't. I won't talk badly of them or. Badly, and I'll protect them if they're in trouble, which I have done. But I remember one moment I was in a hotel with them one afternoon, and this is is a proud—you may not think it's a pride-giving moment—but I was quite proud. Uh, I was talking to a guy, and uh, he was gay, and we're face to face talking. But apparently, from behind me, another gay was making all sorts of signals and indicating what he was going to do to me and all that, and I didn't know. And the guy I was talking to looked over my shoulder at the other guy and said, uh-uh, he's straight, but he's damn good fun. And to me, that was, that was, a, that was, a, that was a moment that I was very pleased with that they accepted me as a straight person. And, right. Uh, that I was good fun, you know? So that was a moment but they that should. i was happy, happy about, you know? Yeah.
0: But they should. I mean, they should accept you as a straight person. You should accept them as a gay person. It, at the end of the day... You know, especially back then, I can understand the curiosity with that. But really, even back then, it's you you are a person, I'm a person, we're different, but we're still people, we're still the same.
1: Yeah. Well, I've got, I've got three guys, I've got three gays coming for dinner tomorrow night, Saturday night, I've got three guys coming for dinner. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're, I've got many, many good friends who are gay. And as I say, three of them, one's married to his husband, and, uh, right. you know, they're they're full-on, full-on gay, and uh, they have to be film directors and, and writers, but that's not the reason I'm inviting them. I'm inviting them because they're my friends. You
0: know? Right, as it should be. And that's something else I think people have got probably gotten over um, that's become apparent, I think, nowadays, is you hear people go, well, there's more gay people now than there was 100 years ago, and I don't think there is. I think no. there's the same amount, the same... It's just now sure. they're more... Free to come out and be themselves oh, yeah. with it. Oh, yeah. So I don't think it's really changed in that respect. Oh, no, no,
1: no. Oh, God, no. Now, in, in my early day when I was young, 15, 14, uh, the gays were living together, but they said, Oh, I'm living with my brother. And now I, re- right. I now I realize, you know, it wasn't his brother. And I said, You don't look anything alike. I know he's my stepbrother, you know, but this sort of thing was going on. And a guy is driving trucks. And uh, you know, guys in the navy, and all, all these butch josh, and yet they were guys. You know, they were hiding behind masculinity, but now they don't need to. Uh, you know, they're accepted much more now than they were in those days, which is good for them.
0: Well, so yeah, not, it's a better no understanding. More,
1: there's no more now than there were then. It's just more of them are coming out, more of them accepted.
0: And I think it's, I think it's good that that's happening and yeah. you waited so we're going to talk about this and the set really went over sexual culture altogether in the 50s i mean this wasn't just homosexual culture this was everything wasn't it roger
1: yeah the book covered the game of uh, sociological like it was older woman younger man uh, uh two girls you know lesbians two guys um life-saving surf life-saving association the uh arts world uh, they have an, an Adelaide Festival of Arts and they had the first Festival of Arts in 1960 and every two years from then on they had an arts festival. So I incorporated the first and second arts festival in the novel and interior designing, one of my friends, I based it on one of my friends who died uh, the other day, actually his wife, he actually got married and uh, his wife sent me a message the other day to tell me he just died. and. Uh, I, I've, I've, not, I've known him for uh, 60 odd years and i based the main that. character of the set on him but he did he did end up getting married but uh, uh um i don't know how or why but he did but he was still and he, openly, pretty openly gay
0: but he decided to get married so he got married yeah, to a he, woman and he had, wow. he had
1: two two children two boys quite butch boys But he was still in interior decorator. And and the other day, uh, I happened to mention to someone that he had died, and she said, oh, did he work for TAFE? Like, that was a a college. I said, yes. He said, oh, he taught me my uh, interior design. I said, oh, really? Did you know he was gay? She said, oh, yeah. So even though he's married with two kids, he was a teacher. Of interior design and they knew, okay, so he he didn't try and hide it when he married. But uh, well you know wife.
0: it's it's funny like that because uh we talk about somebody else, Freddie Mercury.
1: Yeah from the band
0: Queen. You know, Freddie That's Mercury right. was married at a time to Mary Austin and he he wasn't openly gay to the public, as we know. But privately, he was openly gay. Everybody knew it. But he always referred to Mary Austin as his common-law wife. He actually left Mary Austin and her kids everything, said there will never be a greater love than Mary Austin. So I think if you fall in love with somebody, you love somebody for who they are at that point, and not just physically who they are.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: That's That's the only way that I can explain it. Yeah,
1: there's There's a saying amongst the gay community, when a gay does get married, they say, oh, they're just sisters, you know. They are sisters. They live together like two girls. And, uh, and the woman accepts the man for his femininity, and he accepts her for possibly her masculinity, you know. You don't know what the, what the, what the link is, but uh, there is a link. And, and that's it. You can't put a pin on it, you know. you don't.
0: The big thing is, is you can't try to figure it out. People love who they love, and they should be allowed yeah. to love who they love, and that's all there is to it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: So... You know, going in, so you really set this sexual culture for the 50s and 60s, especially in Australia, as conservative as they were, and it was frowned upon, but you wrote this book. Oh, yeah. The book didn't get published till what, 10 years ago? Or yeah. am I correct? Yeah. 2011, yeah. yeah. About 10 nine years. Nine years. Cl- close enough. I mean, horseshoes here this and hand grenades. They made this into a film in 1970 that yeah. got a lot of backlash in Australia, right? Yeah,
1: well- what, what happened, I, as I say, I went to Tahiti and for the peace and quiet to write it, which I did. And when I came back about three years later, um, I tried to sell it here as a, as a novel. And I was thrown out of every publisher's office because of the filth that they thought I wrote. And uh, so I was thrown out of every office. And I was getting a bit desperate. And I, but my main aim, even if I published even then, my main aim was to make a film out of it. And then I met another actor who I knew quite well and he had already worked with an American director who had just come out here and he said to me, look, why don't you contact this guy, a bloke called Frank Brutain. He said, he's looking for Australian films. He's looking for material. So I contacted Frank and he said, yeah, well, I'd like to read it, send it over. So I sent the manuscript over. It was 700 pages, by the way. The manuscript was 700 pages long and uh, Frank, didn't read. He uh, he was dyslexic, so he left it to his wife to read, which was his third wife. She was only twenty four, and uh, he was about fifty five or something. And anyway, she read the book for him. And the, on the night that I I delivered it that afternoon, and she read it that night. And Frank was having a scotch in the lounge, and she was in the bedroom reading it. <laughs> and suddenly she yelled out, "Frank! Frank! Oh my God! You gotta you gotta buy this book!" Frank came You can't in. believe what?
0: what this guy's writing about. That's right.
1: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> she said he's described two men making love. And uh, Frank <laughs> bought it because of that. Frank rang me the next morning and said, we're going to buy your book. I said, what? He said, yeah, yeah, I can't believe what you, say. you know, He said, come down. So I went down to his house and we discussed it. And he said, I want you to write a film script out of every homosexual piece the book. I said, oh, no, I can't do wow. that thing. You know, I can't do that. He said, well, come right. here. He got the manuscript and he put a line, a blue line through every page he wanted me to write a film about. And he said, write a film about that. And I did. I lifted every homosexual angle out of the book. So, so I was just So, he wanted to
0: write it, he wanted to write, he wanted to get a screenplay based on shock value or was he just generally interested in it? I mean, what was his... Angle. Uh, with
1: that. He was a pretty kinky guy. A pretty kinky guy, <laughs> but he was also he was also pretty astute and he knew right. what would sell. He's a very astute guy. He knew what would sell. And he was correct. Uh, and I um, I came back with a, a very good script, I thought. It was my um I'd written for a company as a script editor. The, the company I worked with an actor for uh down in Melbourne. I also was a script editor on their scripts. And uh, so I knew what I was doing, but it took a while, and I did write the script, and I was very happy with it, and Frank was happy with it. But then he had to set about raising the money. By then, I would bought a house in Adelaide. I had two kids by then, and I I bought a house in Adelaide, South Australia, where I was born and where I wanted to bring my kids up. So I bought a house down there. So I went down there, and I worked in the garden for two years and just acted in between whenever I could. Right. I didn't hear a word from Frank for two years. And then all of a sudden, I got a phone call. Uh, can you come to Sydney? On, I was on a Friday, and they rang me and said, can you come to Sydney Sunday night? I said, what for? They said, oh, we're making a film. I said, I picked your part. What film? He said, the set. I said, what? I said, yeah. I said, no. I said, not I, yeah. I said, I'm not coming until I get an airline ticket. He said, oh, you have bloody airline tickets at the, air, at the airport. Just pick it up. And we'll meet you there Sunday night. So I flew over oh, there, damn. and they met me at the airport and took me to the office, and there was a, a big production office. It was all go, go, go. There were hundreds of people working there. And I said, "Ah, oh, great. Where's the script? And they suddenly went quiet, and I I said, where's the script? They said, uh oh, oh, we haven't got any spares. I said, I, I wrote the blank thing. I'd like to read it, the, you know, the shooting script. Anyway, I didn't have one, and the next day I, I turned up on set and I went to one of the actors and I said, can I read, the, you've got, can I just give me a script? And he gave me the script yeah. and I read it. And oh my God, they'd they messed the script up so badly. Even the one I'd written two years before, everybody had had a go at it.
0: Frank's wife. What, did, they, did they mess it up because they wanted to shorten it up? Or did they just go in and say, hey, we don't want this. We want to change this and put this in here and, and just molest it like that. That's what not. was their goal?
1: Well, Frank's 24-year-old wife wrote, a part in there for herself, for a starter. She was not an Ah. Oh. She wrote a part in there for herself, and they gave it to another woman who wrote Patch of Blue, a, a woman called Elizabeth Carter, K-A-T-A. She wrote the novel that the film Patch of Blue was based on, and she was a very vicious, bitchy woman who <laughs> put all lesbian stuff in there that was uh, very badly written. Uh, you know, the so dialogue was very... It- Huh? So did
0: this become like a like a sexual, you know, uh, yeah. free-for-all for what people wanted their fantasies and desires to be? They looked at your script and went, hey, wait a minute, I've always thought about this. Let's put this in the set as well.
1: Exactly. Everybody had a go at it. So I I, I got, I <laughs> would reserve. So, for all, Frank, it was the first time Frank had directed. He was a producer, and he was determined to direct this. And it was the first time he directed and, of course, the first scene I raced out to the thing and said, cut, 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 my God, that is not the line. What are you doing? And Frank, glared at the lad, I mean, said, what the hell is going on here? I said, no, Frank, this is not the line. It doesn't work. This is the line. And, of course, this went off about a week. And Frank was getting wow. angry at that. And I can understand him getting angry, but I didn't want the, my material with my name on it going out with this ridiculous crap. And the actors weren't saying the lines correctly. They were... You know, I just said, you know, it's incorrect,
0: you know. You know, know, writing a book is no different than writing a good song or playing a good role and coming up with a role for a film. I mean, that's your baby. You're delivering that child. You want it to be as you envisioned it.
1: Exactly. Well, Frank made me feel important because I I had to go off and do another film. While that was being made, I had to go off and do a film called Boomerang, I think it was called. I did that with... uh, a couple of Yanks, I can't think they American actors. And then I came back and Frank said, oh, you can't keep running off like this. You know, you've got to stick around. I need you. So I thought, oh, he must he must like my interruptions, you know. So I stayed on. But then I had to go and do another film down in Melbourne. And I went down to Melbourne to do that. And Frank, when I got back, Frank was really angry. He said, you know, you can't leave me. You've got to stick around. So of course I felt free then to leap in front of the camera. And, start, 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 start. and the next thing... Frank so he's a glutton said, for punishment. Yeah. The next thing Frank says to me, Oh, Roger, look, no one knows you wrote the film because there was stacks of publicity, but no one ever mentioned my name. They said the writer is believed to be homosexual. That was one of them. Another one was the writer is believed to be an actor. And Frank said, No one knows who wrote it. We're going to let the world know. I'm going to put you on a, a press junket and we're going to go all over Australia. So get down to the airport now, you know, heading straight to Adelaide, your hometown. We'll start the press junket there. Oh, you beauty. I love publicity. So I hop on the plane. I'm flying <laughs> to Adelaide. I'm about 10 minutes out of Adelaide. So I went to the toilet yeah. and i comb my hair and straighten my necktie and all that. Got off the plane and the airport's empty. There was a cleaner. That's all that was there, running around with a broom. I said, oh, excuse me, Did you see the press? She said, what press? I said, the newspaper press. She said, nah. And she swept on. And Frank had sent me out of town on a phony bloody uh, junket to get news rid of me. Yeah. Goose chase. Get me out of town. So I got the message. Oh, so I, didn't, I, I didn't go back. I got the message. <laughs> Finally, I don't blame you. had enough of me. So the rest of the film went out without my so-called input. And they're the they're the moments in the film that I hate, and uh, that I. But I've accepted it now. The, the film still works, but. By God, there's a lot of I mean, stuff in there that I would love
0: to get out of them. Yeah, you but know. but you know, it's got to be a tough pill to swallow learning about how people manipulate your your books to screenplays. I mean, you see it all the time with these authors that sell their rights or or yeah. work with somebody on a movie and the screenplay. And that's why I said I got your book in the other day. I have not had time to read it. I started it and have not had time to read it. But I gave you my word that yeah. I'm going to read the book before yeah. I watch the movie. Because I know how this happens when they do a screenplay. They're always going to go right off with the author, right far away from what the author wanted to actually get across. So I give you my word. I'm going to read that before I actually watch the movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, good, good, good. Yeah, I like that. I would prefer you to do that.
0: (laughs) So, but but now you've come to accept the movie, though. I mean, you've accepted it for what it is. You understand there's parts you don't like. But I see that you still uh, push the movie. You still promote it. Correct?
1: Yeah, I do. Because, um, well, I've got a piece of the DVD. I've got a pretty large percentage of the DVD and, of course, the book as well. So, you know, it all boils down to uh, royalties and selling your product, you know. I mean, I made a lot of money. I did make money. I mean, despite the fact that Frank was an a-hole, he did pay me extremely well. (laughs) I got a lot of money. And I must say that after the film was made and all the publicity was out, all those publishers threw me out of their office with disrespect. Suddenly, said, "Oh, excuse right. me, we're ready to uh, we're ready to publish your novel now." I so, said, "Well, look, forget it, because the money well, publishing is not a big payer unless you've got a, a multi million dollar uh, multi million sale. You're not going to make much money from writing. I made a lot of money from the film, so I had the I could say to the publishers, "I oh, forget it. You know, you didn't want to know me, you know, three years ago, but now you want me. Forget it." But then,
0: well, it's got to be a good—it's got to be a good, it's gotta be a good th- feeling to to smack them on the forehead when they come crawling back, and now we want your now we want your book, now we want to make money off of it. Yeah, exactly. it's like piss off.
1: Yeah, that's right. It felt good. It felt good to say that, but like thirty years later, or, or even more, when I open my bottom drawer and I see the manuscript still sitting there, I thought, "I I might try and republish this." So I contacted someone in London. And the way we went, and we did it in London. And uh, it, it, um, it's come out quite well. I'm quite happy with the book. And uh, that's why I want people to read the book, so that they would know what the film could have been, you know, it could have been or what it should have been. That's why I want them to read the book. Uh, well, nowadays, really.
0: yeah. nowadays, if they were to make that novel into a film, they could oh. get away with a lot more, oh, and yeah. then you'd have a lot more control over what they were going to put in there. So... um. You know, I guess the last thing about that is, so you you look down, you see you see the manuscript, you see the the rough draft, whatever it is you've got laying in your dresser drawer or your yeah. bedside, whatever. You look at it. Did you pick it up and read it and go through the whole thing? And and did were you reminded of things you forgot that were in there? Were you like, holy cow, yeah. I didn't know this? Yeah. Well, after actually, forty years.
1: I'm I'm a bit of an ego maniac, you know. I- but a few times I said I read I said, gee, that's not bad. That's pretty good. You know, like I I I like <laughs> <Right. play> from, <laughs> But being an egomaniac
0: amaze, I amaze myself sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like I said, I've got that I've got the book myself. I'm gonna read it, then I'm gonna watch the film, but I've also got a gay uh, couple of gay friends myself. I wanna get that book to them. Um, they've never heard of it but oh, we're in the States. So I want to get it to them, and hopefully they can circulate that as well. And there's one thing I want to touch on that I think is really cool. We talked about going to Tahiti. We talked about you writing the book there. We went all over that. But there's something else happened in Tahiti. You met somebody that was filming a movie over there, didn't you?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, uh, Marlon Brando. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, I must, I must say, I went, I went to Tahiti by ship, uh, the Southern Cross. And on board ship, as you know, You've got three meals a day. You've got supper, afternoon tea. You've got bed for the night. And uh, I got off that, off that boat. And I had made a lot of friends on board. But they were all heading for England. And I was the only one getting off in Tahiti. And, uh, oh, God, I, felt, I, thought, I suddenly realised what I'd done. I had five reams of paper. And I had a portable typewriter. I didn't have much money in the bank. And I had to write right. a novel. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, I felt so – I felt virtually suicidal. I felt, my God, I'm, oh, I'm here, but I don't want to know. And I saw that boat or that ship sailing while I stood on the end of the wharf and watched it go, and I felt so depressed and so so desperate. Damn. And I turned around, and I walked back to the town, and I thought, I'll get a coffee. And I went to a coffee lounge, and holy crap, there's Marlon Brando sitting there outside under an umbrella. And my whole so you just deme-
0: stumbled into, Mar- yeah. You just stumbled into Marlon Brando.
1: Yeah, he was sitting there.
0: What and are I, the odds?
1: My whole demeanor uh, rose. You know, I suddenly, I felt elated. I said, ha! That's why I've come to Tahiti. I got to meet." Brando. Something's brought me here. Yeah, that's right. So, but I was too shy to speak to him, and I watched him and I followed him down the road. Actually, I was like a buddy stalker. He he got up. I think he could sense. He's very astute. Brander, very astute man, and uh was a sense that I was looking at him, and he got he got up and he walked off. So I followed him like a bloody stalker, and he was looking. And you're at a shop- kid at this point. Yeah, and you're yeah, a young guy at this point. 20, 22 Yeah, yeah. And, and and he's looking at shop windows and all that sort of thing, and taking his time, and I'm loitering. But all of a sudden, out of a, a street further down, uh, an American tourist and his wife came up. And they looked up and they could see Brando heading towards him. And he said at the top of his voice, holy crap,
0: there's Marlon Brando!
1: <laughs> and he pulled out his little miniature camera and I could hear, I'm behind Brando and I could hear him as if he was alongside of me. And Brando's in the middle, so he heard him. But Brando ignored him totally. Instead, kept looking in the shop windows. And the guy's got his camera going, filming Brando and took about 30, 45, 50 seconds and then suddenly Brando realizes, in brackets, you know, oh my God, I'm being filmed. So he put his hand over his face, put on a great big pose, and sort of ran off, you know, ran away. But he gave the guy, he gave the guy 50 minutes, you know, 50 seconds.
0: But you can't blame the guy for doing that. When in Rome, I mean, yeah. right? It's it's sees the day. Carpe That's diem. Right. You're there. Hey. You got Marlon Brando. Take the pictures. I don't blame him.
1: That's right. <laughs> but, but but that was the beginning. But. I then ran into another guy called Dewey Martin, who was uh, an actor over there. He did to Profane and he married um, a jazz singer. Uh, oh, I can't think of what it was, but he was he just divorced her, And he'd come to Tahiti to bury his sorrows and he was a very lovely guy. And I, I met him yeah. and he found out that I was an actor and all that sort of thing. And we, we got mating and he said he was staying in a certain hotel and that uh, uh, I should go and stay there. I didn't want to spend my money on a hotel. I wanted to find a, an apartment or a house, and I couldn't get one. Right, They're very, very hard to find there. So I went to the hotel where Julie lived, and I booked myself in there. I thought, oh, well, I'll just stay here for a month, spend all my money, and then go home. And uh,
0: the the introduced master me. plan.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. But Julie introduced me to a bunch of film people, including Brando, and they were there to make me wow. on the Valdi's. So it was through Dewey that I got into the circle the Brando moved in. But even though I moved in the same circle and spent every day with him and his group, I still didn't speak to Brando. I went to nightclubs with him. I went to coffee lounges with him. I went, had fun with him. Never once did I speak to him socially And for two weeks.
0: But the- – they had to be a little intimidating to be around Brando that much and try to, did you did you try to work up the courage to go up and be like, hey, Mr. Brando, you know, I'm Roger, nice to meet you.
1: I can sense you watching me. Like, he knew that I was ignoring him and it sort of intrigued him in a way that he sort of thinks, what is going on with this guy? Like, he sets that too, but he's also very astute. And uh, he knew that I was wanting to speak to him. But anyway, one day I'm in a coffee lounge and who's in there lounge? No one but Brando, just me and him. So finally, I walked up to him. I said, uh, "What are you doing about your extras for uh, mutiny?" That's the first thing I said. What are you doing about your extras for mutiny? He looked me up and down. Just point blanked him. Yeah, point blank. He looked me up and down. He stood up. He sat down. He waved his arms around. You, th- you think you was in the waterfront, you know? And then he says <laughs> to me, "We're getting our extras for the states." I said, "Hey, I'm not an extra." I'm an actor. What are you doing about your actors? He said, oh, we get no actors for the stage, too. So then he stood up, and he went to the window. Now, the window faced a brick wall, and he stood staring right. out that window at the brick wall with his back to me. And I, I waited, and I gave him a good five minutes, and he gave me five minutes because I'd gone. And he turned around so you and said, two two I was still there.
0: You two are holding out.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. He got the shock of his life to see me. And I said, uh, thank you. He said, any time. So I went off and I went to an island called Maria uh, okay. that, that afternoon. And all, all I took was a pareo, which is a cloth you wrap around yourself, a pair of goggles and a pair of flippers. I intended to come back that night. But on the way there, we had a problem with our boat. We nearly sank and we, we had a change from one boat to another. So I got to the island very late. And when I got off the boat, who was on the bloody wharf? But Brando. I said, what? There's only one boat from Maria, and I was on it. But Brando's on the island. So that.
0: So you get off the boat, and you pretty much come face to face with Brando?
1: Yeah. And I lost all my energy. So, I said, hey, how did you get here? He said, I came by speedboat. He said, you had a pretty rough day. And so then we just started to talk. He said, where's your luggage? I said, here. And I held my goggles and my slippers up, and he laughed like it, oh it was like it sort of thing you do, you know. And he said, "Come on, I'll come up here." And, he t- and we, from then on, we were mates. We uh, we just lost all the inhibitions we both had, and we were just treated each other like normal people. And we spent I spent wow. I, I didn't go back. I I stayed in Maria for another two weeks, <laughs> and I lived everywhere: slept on the floor, of people's houses, slept on the beach, and but all the time mixing and mingling with Brando and even on. Uh, sterling hayden's yacht sterling hayden came down with his yacht and we i I stayed on there a few days so you know that broke all the ambitions but that's how we you know we became friends
0: you know you just said though you slept on people's floors you slept on the beach but that had to have been one of the better memories that you've got of your childhood or your younger days yeah i mean didn't have any money but that's got to be just an awesome memory to have. And then you ended up, he ended up getting you on Mutiny on the Bounty, right?
1: Yeah, I did a few things. I did uh, the Dinah Shore show. I did uh, an attack. Uh, the Julie Martin was booked for a film. Um, uh, the Italian booked Julie Martin for a film, but he said he didn't want to do it. And he said, look, Roger can play the. Part. It was a lead character. And uh, the Italian director, producer said, oh, no, we won't use Roger as a lead, but he can have a few parts. And so uh, I did a bit of work on that that was called nude odyssey. And then I did, uh, uh bits and pieces on beauty.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, made money. Did you, st- well, you made money and it had to be great memories. It was something that, I mean, you said you were 20, 21 years old at the time. That's yeah. just a really cool story. You went through to write a book and you ended yeah. up getting to know Marlon Brando and getting, you know, any part in a Brando film back then had to be a big deal for anybody at that point. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the one last thing I wanted to go over. I wanted to hear the story, and you delivered it yep. superbly. Um, so what's going on now? I mean, we've covered everything. What do you got in the future um, that's irons in the fire? I know you got something coming up. You're going to be doing your breakout role in India, I think, I saw on uh, your Facebook page.
1: Yeah, some guy, a producer from India, has approached me to do a film, but that won't be done till 20... 20- 22, but it's uh, it's the lead character in, uh, uh, set in India in the 18th century. Uh, I don't know much about it, but um, he's doing a lot of PR, a lot of publicity, but uh, I don't know much about it, but I'm very interested.
0: The preview for it looks cool, the one you yeah, got he did, up he on he Facebook. Yeah, he
1: did a good job with that. Yeah, he did a good job. That's what got me interested. I wasn't overly... He's been in contact with me since January, but I, I haven't been overly interested because I didn't get a script and nothing concrete, but when he came up with that uh, preview, he think he, uh, it was quite good and I've taken a bit more interest now and he's he sent me all sorts of newspaper articles from India, but I'm interested because it's going to be shot in Kerala in South India and that's where my wife, I am married right. an Indian girl and uh, that's where my wife comes from Kerala, and uh, she's an actress as well, a, a journalist and so I'm interested in doing it in Kerala her hometown and uh, you know, get her in there as well so that's why I'm interested
0: is there anything that's come out lately um, that we should be looking out for that we can go and watch right now? That's you know part of your your catalog of work.
1: Mm, yeah, well, I just I just noticed I got a message from uh, a film I did called The Faceless Man, and he just wrote to me and told me he's got a release in North America in August, August the twenty eighth, I believe. So I'm happy about that. That's called The Faceless Man, which is a horror film. Uh, I just do a it's a good role, but it's it's only short. It's uh, he's a he's the town's leader, like he's the mayor of the town, but he's a mad, mad uh, killer as well. And uh, I, I like. It sounds that, like something of,
0: right up your alley.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did it with a <laughs> did it with a with a machete and a tomahawk, uh, machete and a bald head, and cut a guy's head off in the film. So it's quite, good. It's quite awesome. Quite good, up my alley, yeah. But um, otherwise, these people are coming for dinner on Saturday night. Well, I'm doing two films for them. It was to be July, and then the same day he booked me for July, he said, I'm sorry, it's got to be done in August now. So it looks like, no, September, September. So it looks like we're doing it in September. He's doing two films back to back. So I'll be doing those in September, just two films back to back, and then he's got a big one uh, coming up that he's trying to get the finance for. Uh, so I've got about, and I've got two others in December as well, back to back. So there is there is work around, but we're all waiting for the uh, the virus to settle down. But I'm writing, I'm I'm writing right now actually. I'm, I'm working on an American boy, and uh, it's a book um, called um, Be Viralist. So I'm, I'm working on that, and uh, and I'm correcting and writing other people's work as well. So I'm very busy as a writer as well.
0: That's great. I mean, if you keep writing, we're going to keep reading it. You keep acting. We're going to keep watching it, Roger. So a couple things to look forward to. Uh, here in the States, we have the Faceless Man that's going to have its North American debut on August 28th. And then he's also currently right now working on The Viralist. Roger, it was an honor. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, and, and it was a great time.
1: All right, thanks, you It's been lovely to talk to you about Thanks so much.
0: And that concludes my interview with Australian actor, author, and screen legend, Roger Ward. Ladies and gentlemen, you just heard it all from the horse's mouth. Donzo out.